guys, the show where the lines between freight and finance are none. I'm your host, Andrew Cox, Senior Retail Analyst <clears throat> here at FreightWaves. I'm alongside lead economist Anthony Smith once again today because we're going to talk about some economic data. We're also going to talk about the service sector absolutely roaring back, causing big supply chain disruptions, especially in food uh, as people go back to restaurants and producers try to make up for where they give their supply to, restaurants or grocery after a year of prioritizing grocery spend. And we're also going to have Daniel Hackett. He's a partner at Hackett Associates. Hackett Associates is a, a global maritime data, cons- data um, and consultancy. He's going to talk to us about his global port tracker that they put out in tandem with the, Glo- with the National Retail Federation. See what he's seeing for import levels over the next few months. They've been rising a lot. We've got a lot of port congestion. We're going to talk about that throughout the economic data as well. But before we get going, I do want to take a moment to thank my sponsor, DDC FPO. This episode is brought to you by DDC FPO. DDC is a business process outsourcing provider that specializes in freight, perhaps best known for freight billing. DDC recently launched IT outsourcing to help supply chain stakeholders hit development milestones without risking financial performance. Learn more at ddcfpo.com. All right, Mr. Smith, we've got two charts of the day for the people today. You have one and I have one as well. Let's go with yours first. All right, let's do it. So first chart we're getting into is one of the areas that, of course, I watch very closely, as you know, and that's going to look more into manufacturing. And what we're looking at right here is non-defense capital goods, new orders compared to our very own flatbed outbound tender rejection and Excel showing flatbed capacity. So with the non-defense capital goods, new orders, excluding aircrafts, I always say it is quite a mouthful, but when we're looking at it, it's looking at business to business activity. So non-defense because Defense spending can be very volatile. And when we're taking out uh, aircraft, that's also a very volatile segment as well. So what we're seeing here is consistent year over, I'm sorry, not year over year, month to month increases. And that's been happening ever since we're looking at all throughout um, the mid part of 2020. So it's been a constant increase, not a steady rise, not, I mean, a rapid rise, but it's been a steady rise. Um, throughout the last year and a half or so. And, and, and looking at that, it's telling because if we remember a previous episodes, we were talking about the ISM PMI and the prices component, and those prices are elevated. And so what we're seeing right now is businesses having that increased new order activity despite the prices that's really kind of being incurred by them. And so that's telling me that's going to be more inflationary pressure, especially as we look downstream because those prices have to go somewhere those manufacturers are only going to take those price increase hits for so long. We're going to talk about the ISM manufacturing index here towards the end of the show, but it seems to me that a lot of these producers, these suppliers are numb to these price increases. They keep talking about it in all the comments, but it's not slowing down demand. They're still trying to keep up. They're having all these labor issues as well, but they're just numb to these price increases right now. Exactly. And and that's a big thing is like they're, I think you worded it perfectly, they're numb to these price increases. And it's just going to keep flowing and flowing, flowing. We have these businesses that are going to want to keep spending. Um, there's an accelerated growth right now for capital goods expenditures, and that's going to move downstream. And we're seeing the consumers have not really been too deterred at all from these increased prices. I know completely different segment altogether, but housing, looking at that segment, people are paying 20, 30, 40, $50,000 above asking. 
and not being deterred at all. I mean, I know that's a completely different segment, but it seems to be almost a mentality yeah. overall throughout the entire economy. It's certainly anomalous, right? Yeah. That we have we have consumers on one one side completely numb to price increases in housing. Uh, they're becoming less numb to increases at the grocery store and at the gas pump. We're seeing that with the consumer uh, sentiment and confidence indices kind of slowing in May. But uh, spending still strays really high on consumer side. We'll talk more about that in a moment. All right, my chart of the day today is freight rates across modes. Okay, we're date, we are comparing here to July of 2020. They're all up. I mean, they're all up a lot. So we're looking in the blue. You, see, you have maritime. This is China to the U.S. West Coast of the Freitos Daily Baltic Index. It's up 100%. The pink line is air rates from Hong Kong to the U.S. up 74%. Green, intermodal contract rates and yellow van contract rates up 29% and 15% respectively. Of course, those contract rates are going to be much less volatile uh, w- within a range uh, compared to the spot rates, which are in blue and in pink for different modes. The idea is here is prices, right? We're going to talk about the prices in the manufacturing, uh, ISM, PMI, transportation costs are included in that. This is showing them they're across the board. And I think one more point that I'll make is that you're going to pay the 74% more in pink to get it air air uh, air cargo here, or you're going to pay the 100% more to get it in maritime, and then you're still going to have to pay 15, 20% more in contract rates once it's here in land transportation. So it's it's just unabating on every level. You're going to have to pay more on every level, every move uh, that you make in the supply chain. So that's there are the two charts of the day. Uh, let's keep the keep the ball rolling here because we've got a very jam packed show today. So we've got you, Kara Nah. I've got a few for you, Anthony. The first one is actually an update to a previous one we had done back during our event with NASA. Uh, we spoke with Ron Epstein, the Bank of America analyst who covers kind of aerospace and national defense, and we talked about boom supersonic back then. This has been the first news we've heard since then. This is uh, United Airlines has decided they're going to buy 15 of the uh, supersonic planes from Boom called the Boom Overture. There they are right there. Absolutely gorgeous planes. Uh, They have the option for 35 more down the road. Anthony, you care or not about United buying these planes from Boom? I care. I care. With this one, um, it kind of takes me back to the not too bright days of Concorde Mm -hmm. um, when those were kind of taking the skies. And so... That didn't go too well, of course, with the crashing and things like that. But this is exciting because I think it's kind of an allure for United. And there's, I think it brings a little bit of a luster to their to their company. Now, only buying 15 right now, so it's not going to be something that's going to be massively available to anyone just on a you know regular domestic flight. But I think this is an exciting move, an exciting step. Um, we'll see if it expands into more purchases, more of these high-end uh, aircrafts. But yeah, I'm excited. I care about this. Yeah, I'm excited as well. Uh, like Anthony said, only 15 to start, maybe 50 down the road at some point. But it's going to be a while before they see these in the air. They're slated to roll out in 2025. They're going to do first test flights in 2026, but expected to roll out to uh, commercial people by 2029. Very exciting. These are going to reach speeds of Mach 1.7. That's twice as fast as uh, aircraft today. So I do, I do have a question for you. So they gave a couple like proposed flight plans. They said uh, LA, or, I'm sorry, uh, New York to London in three and a half hours. Uh, and then they also said, um, you know, LA to Tokyo in six hours. And uh, which of those are more expressing to you, right? They're both about half the time. But I was just so excited when I heard Tokyo, from LA to Tokyo in six hours, because that flight is dreadful uh, yeah. to go all the way over there. And I was thinking also to the Sydney flight. The Sydney's like an 18-hour flight. I can only imagine doing that in like eight hours. Yeah. Be pretty nice. I, I'm, I would be extremely excited about the LA to Tokyo prospect right there. I mean, always here, like you said, the Australia one, you need a vacation just from the flight. You need to take yeah, a break right. just from flying. Right. And so, But if you can fly to LA 
to Tokyo in that short amount of time. This is far ahead, but I'm also thinking about NFL prospects because the big thing about like having a European team or something like that or across overseas right. is that flight time. But right. you know, if you have these type of planes <clears throat> and transportations, might be an NFC Europe or something or yeah, AFC Yeah, or, or an NBA Tokyo. team in China, yeah. definitely. All right, uh, let's uh, move on, on to uh, into number two. We'll do this one very quickly. This is on Jeff Bezos. He is actually going to be on the first manned test flight of his uh, new Shepard, the Blue Origin uh, outer space flight. It's going to be like an 11-minute flight, going to take him up, put him 60 miles above Earth. He's going to be with his brother, apparently, and a couple other people. You care or no? Nah. Nah, not on this one. Um, I mean, it's cool that he is going to, you know, he has that trust in his company, his Blue Origin, things like that. But it just kind of seems like this is a, is a competition, it seems like, essentially, between him and Elon Musk and a space race. And I think it's cool because that competition is going to lead to innovation right. and kind of push technology forward. But this one, not too much. Yeah, I, heard, I saw a funny joke on Twitter that was like, uh, is, isn't flying to space the ultimate billionaire divorced man thing to do? <laughs> I was like, yeah, it really is. Uh, I, yeah, I don't really care either. I, I do think it's ballsy that he's getting up there on the first flight, but yeah. they've completed like 15 test flights and it's going to be the exact same thing. And, you know, it just goes up and it parachutes down, um, lands pretty softly. So I, I think it should be a pretty safe thing for him to do. Uh, but I'll certainly be watching. I think it's happening July 20th for anybody that wants to keep up. Okay, uh, this one is, I think, more for you. And it's not so much you care or not. This is kind of a big deal, little deal that, uh, what, that what the truck used to do. But I, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I think we should talk about it. So the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, their eviction mor- the eviction moratorium that has been in effect since September will lift on June 30th at the end of this month. There's more than 11 million Americans behind on their rent, and many could be pushed from their homes when the national eviction ban expires. Tell me why this is a big deal, Anthony. So it's a big deal just off of that last part that millions could be pushed from their homes and, you know, out on the streets. And so it's a huge deal. I just don't think, looking at the trajectory or the moves that our government has made up until this point, really kind of with these stimulus packages, these unemployment benefits, and really kind of aiding the U.S. consumer and just American people throughout the course of this pandemic that it, they're just going to cut the line here. It's like, all right, well, you're done. So I, I, this is a huge risk. And I think if nothing's done, there's that huge risk of all these people being out on the streets and this mass evictions. So that's a real reality. The thing is, I, I find it hard to believe that from the actions that we've taken early on in the pandemic, that there won't be a more smoother transition um, put in place before the end of the month here. Yeah, I mean, this isn't my expertise, so I'll, I don't really have much an opinion on it other than I would agree with you. The way that we've tapered off benefits throughout, it seems that there would be some sort of tapering off of this as well. That's what we can hope for. Uh, they've got a few weeks to, to get something passed to kind of to, to make this easier of a transition. All right, last one, uh, a little bit more of a fun one. Bring the, bring the energy back up a bit. Easy and Gap, we had talked about it a couple weeks ago, kind of waiting on that first drop. Apparently, it's here. We have a $200 Jackets. It doesn't have any fasteners, so no buttons, no uh, zippers, just that puff thing there. Uh, you care or not, Anthony? I care. I care. I don't want one. <laughs> I'm not going to wear one. But I care because it shows that, okay, it, this isn't something that was just like a headline item and just kind of push it back to the, you know, under the rug and it's not going to, anything is going to come to fruition. So I care that there's actually something coming. Um, hopefully more dope attire is released. Um, something that maybe 
isn't going to be at such a high price point. Right. That's, that was my thing. They yeah. said that they said we're going to make fashionable things for men, women, and children at accessible price points. I don't think I've ever been in Gap and seen anything for $200. Right. I, think, I don't know. I, I'm excited to see the whole lineup, I, I guess. I'm probably not going to buy any of it, but uh, I, I don't really care about that jacket. I, I think it's, <laughs> I think cool it's silly. Piece. I, it's definitely a statement piece. He was wearing it the other day on his birthday. Um, in any case. All right. Uh, we got uh, one buyer sell before we get to Mr. Hackett, and I'm going to actually bring Daniel on for one of the buyer sells because it is maritime focused. Okay, Anthony, this is a, a statement that I heard from Mark Allen. He's the chief executive of the International Food Service Distributors Association. This was made uh, to the Wall Street Journal. He's talking about how the rebound in services, especially the rebound in restaurants, have been a lot. So he said, over the last six weeks, we have seen the market come roaring back faster than anyone would have anticipated. Are you buying that or selling that, that it came back faster than anyone would have anticipated? I am selling that. I think everyone anticipated it to really reopen and that it's going to be a ramp up. I just don't think we're prepped for that. And I think that kind of leads into the argument um, that I think a lot of people have around COVID, that COVID caused so many disruptions within our supply chain. I think more so COVID exposed a lot in our supply chain. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're just, we've just been exposed. And I think that's what one of the draws of freight was, is like we've been trying to talk about these events that happened throughout the world. Now it's just on a magnified scale. So I don't buy it. I'm selling it. No. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, that's a really good point. And I, I'm, I'm buying that there are disruptions, right? Yeah. I'm buying that they are having difficulty right now, but I'm not buying that they didn't see this coming. Yeah. Like if anybody would have been watching that Bank of America data, you could have seen that in January when Florida opened up, their restaurant and entertainment spending came flying back. Here's restaurant and spending across the country. Uh, you know, if you would just look there in February, uh, yeah. you can look back at the California data. When California eased COVID restrictions, their spending at restaurants went up 30% week over week. Right. Like people were dying to go out to restaurants. I was sick of eating at home too. Yeah. I just don't see how this they, how they're going to play this off as they couldn't have seen it coming. Um, I, they're obviously dealing with the terrible bullwhip effect here of supply. You know, of, of supply being, and it's a complex one right here. So. Yeah. Uh, we, we have we have suppliers that have allocated to grocery over the past year that are now trying to revert back to restaurants. We have demand that has completely changed. Restaurant have slimmed down their menus. They've optimized for to-go food, so yeah. very little salads. I mean, there's just there's a lot of things going on in both supply and demand um, that are going to be difficult to work through. Uh, but I'm not buying that you didn't see it coming. Yeah, and I think big other big part is that we were really anticipating or looking at these little scopes of either micro regions or states or even segments as experiments and tests and case right. studies of like, this is what it's going to be like for the rest of the country once, you know, Florida takes that step or exactly. Texas repeals some of those mask mandates. So exactly right. Yep. All right. Uh, I've got a buy or sell for Mr. Daniel Hackett. So let's bring him on. Daniel, thanks so much for joining the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Yes, we very much enjoy having you here. So uh, this one is, I heard the Ross CEO, Barbara Lint, uh, Rintler, excuse me, uh, she is talking about an inventory bubble that may uh, come from the port congestion on the West Coast. So I'll read this excerpt. It's actually from my point of sale newsletter yesterday, but it says, in its first quarter call, Ross Stores CEO, Barbara Rintler said, in terms of availability and quality and quantity, we're seeing pretty great supply of opportunities in the marketplace. But she did point to the West Coast ports congestion as a challenge that it has slowed some of the receipts coming into the country. No arguing that. Uh, she said that she has, she added to the point in saying that she believed the congestion will present a major opportunity for Ross and other off-price apparel retailers because she hasn't seen it yet, 
but at some point there will be a bubble of inventory when things start to self-correct. Those were direct quotes from here, from her. Uh, so, Mr. Hackett, are you buying or selling that uh, there could be a bubble of inventory? And then, I mean, or should we even buy or sell either of this because things may not self-correct anytime soon? So I can't speak to uh, the Ross supply chain specifically, but yeah, I'm not buying that. If you look at the uh, sales to inventory ratios, we're now at historic lows going back to 1992 when the records began. Uh, it was, I believe, a 1.1 uh, uh, 1 .1 for the month of March. Normally, we see 1.4 to 1.5 range. The fact that it's that low, it's with, that's essentially saying we have one month of current sales rates before we run out of inventory. So I think if there's a bubble forming, we would see that ratio higher. And that's what we saw prior to the 2008 recession. That inventory level was really going up. The inventory to sales ratio level was increasing. So when it reaches sort of 1.7, then maybe I buy that there's a potential uh, bubble. Right now, I think it's low. We're seeing imports. Yes, they may be stuck at the ports, but they're still coming in. They're still flowing through the ports. It's just that the vessels waiting to unload are, are delayed. There are more vessels on their way, and the cargo is taking longer to move through the port itself off, off the terminal. Well, that's to be said that. The, uh, the sales numbers are still high. We saw a slight decrease in April versus March, but it was minimal. And in part, that was perhaps because March was bumped up because of the um, spending money that people had from the federal government. That's decreased a little bit. And then to go back to your point about services, like you said, I agree with both of you. Uh, people had that pent-up demand to go, go shopping in actual stores again, to go have a meal, to go do something outside in an environment where it was different to their home. So I think that the retail sector is going to remain strong. And I think the service sector is also, like you said, is booming. So yes, I, I'm not buying it. Yeah, it's hard to argue. Like, we, you know, we've been talking about this reversion from goods to services. You know, as we were stuck in home, we've been spending so much more on goods, thinking about when that reversion is going to happen. And every week I keep thinking, uh, well, it's going to be this week. We're going to see, you know, because restaurant spending is up 25% over 2019. And airline spending is now only down like 20% versus 2019. And lodging is up yeah. positive over 2019. Services are absolutely roaring back. Uh, but yet it doesn't seem to stop any goods demand. Goods demand remains really strong, even for the things that we've been buying, home improvement and exercise equipment and online electronics, those all stay really strong, at least from the Bank of America data. So, Daniel, talk to me a little bit about the port report. Um, I, I'm not sure. I think we're in between releases. Tell me a little bit about what we can look forward to, if you can. Yeah, we came out yesterday, in fact. So uh, the National Retail Federation had a press release. You can find that online. Otherwise, uh, reach out to me, um, danielhackassociates.com. But April uh, versus March was a slight decrease in terms of volume. But we're still talking huge percentage gains year on year. Now, again, comparing year on year at the moment isn't great because 2020 was obviously when uh, we had these big decreases at this time of year. But we're talking about a 35% increase on the West Coast, a 30, uh, sorry, 23%, sorry, a 28% increase on the West Coast, a 29% increase on the East Coast year on year. So huge volume. And in terms of year to date through the first four quarters, we're up about 35% on the West Coast, 23% on the East Coast. So we're looking at big growth year on year. Again, like I said, you have to take that with a grain of salt, but the volumes are still high. The volumes we're seeing on both the East Coast and the West Coast are strong and remaining strong. We're forecasting, essentially at this point, volumes are going to stay relatively level where they are. And that's not because uh, demand is tapering off. It's we've somewhat reached the limit of what the ports can handle at the moment. I think it's worth noting that several ports have new cranes coming online, either right now or in the future. But that still will be a backlog and it takes a while to get everything moving again. So we're looking at, at 
volume sustained for the next few months. And I think it's worth noting there's still congestion. Uh, it may be down from the highs in LA and Long Beach, but at the port of Oakland, it's now becoming so bad we have vessels diverting from Oakland back down to LA or Long Beach, uh, to some extent also up to the Pacific Northwest. On the East Coast, uh, Savannah and Norfolk, Virginia, both have congestion as well. So the, the volumes, I think, are just going to be sustained for the next few months. And it's worth bearing in mind, we're about to reach back-to-school sales. And maybe this time last year, it wasn't as big a deal as normal because schools were mostly canceled or canceled, but at home, virtually. This year, it looks like most schools around the country are going to be in person again. And so we may have huge back-to-school sales uh, compared to last year. Again, comparing year and year is always tricky at this point. But uh, yeah, should be should be a good back-to-school year, I think. Daniel, I'm glad, <clears throat> glad you brought up back to school because uh, if you think back to Amazon Prime Day of last year, they kind of had it there in October and it started a 75-day peak holiday season. I think they have wisely put it uh, June 21st and June 20th and 21st. I think they're going to kick off what is going to be a 75-day back to school season and it's just going to be huge. I mean, you look at Walmart, Target, Best Buy, they've all followed with incredible promotions that's going to try to you know compete on that day. Uh, Daniel, I heard a lot about congestion there, and I heard it's getting worse in some places. Is there anything, is it getting any better anywhere? anywhere? Is container availability getting any better? Are there any, you know, are there any progress to, to, re to report on ahead of what we're expecting to be a pretty strong back-to-school season? Yeah, I wish I could give you lots of positive news, but essentially the, the supply chain globally is somewhat stretched, and it has been for a while now. We're still looking at only a 1% uh, of the fleet, with the container fleet uh, not really being put to use. And then combine that with, we now have congestion occurring in China. Uh, the port of Yantian is facing major delays because they had a COVID outbreak and that led to additional protocols to try and stop it uh, spreading. That's then resulted in decreased throughput. And we're now seeing various carriers actually bypassing Yantian. And just to put in perspective, uh, in 2020, the port of LA handled about 9 million, 9.2 million TEUs total. Yantian handled over 13, I think it was like 13.3 million TEUs. So essentially we're talking about a port bigger than anything we have in the US uh, facing major congestion, that's going to then flow down the network even more uh, when it finally gets operational again. And so we're just talking about continued stress on the supply chain. And I think one of the things we're looking at is just continue high volumes, definitely through Q3, potentially all the way through to Q4. Well, uh, Anthony, so, quick question, because you, you mentioned that there is quite a bit of stress. And of course, there's a, a, a lot of stress that we are noting right now on the supply chain. But I'm curious on your perspective, is there one specific variable that you can say is going to be more paramount than all the others, whether that's um, commodities, whether that's the position or the, the TEUs being in the right place, or maybe even inventory or employment? Is there one variable in your mind that could really make the biggest impact and kind of really easing all of this right now? So I think... I, I, maybe to answer your question slightly from the reverse, is the thing that's been supporting so much of the retail consumption for the past 12 months has been the handouts from the federal government. That's been uh, dropping off recently. And so I think that will maybe curtail some of the consumer spending. So it remains to be seen how much that can be offset over the next six months by back to school spending and holiday spending. I think also the fact that we're going to start seeing people spending more on activities, on services. How much does that cut into retail consumption? And to be honest, one of the big things is, is how much stuff do people need? Uh, have we all purchased enough over the past 12 months that we can now start saying, okay, now I'm going to start spending money on services? Yeah, you know, I, I think that obviously depends on, on the people's economic uh, situation. 
But I think to some extent, a lot of the uh, computers and sports equipment that you mentioned before, to some extent, that might be uh, seeing lower levels. The other side of this is inflation. I think the the big data point that uh, I'm keeping an eye on is inflation. We're seeing already that housing is going to cost a lot more to construct. Uh, the vehicles are now becoming incredibly expensive compared to where they were 12 months ago. And so perhaps that too is inflation then filters down through the system, especially because the fact that freight rates are increasing, maybe the cost of goods and services overall will increase slightly. That may have a dent on actual consumer spending too. Right now it's under control, but that's something I'm keeping my eye on. Well, that is, um, you know, we, we were hoping for some some green shoots and maybe there's one good thing that could happen. And you answered it in a beautiful way, but it wasn't exactly uh, the most positive news. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, is I, it's worth noting that the, the system is overall doing well. We are still seeing high volumes coming through and it's, the system is being stressed in many locations. And I think overall it's proven itself pretty, uh, pretty resolute. The, the cargo is still flowing. Shops are still full of, of inventory. People are still able to buy what they need. So I think the, the, the positive takeaway is that you know, it's not as great as it could be, but we're doing absolutely fine. Except for chicken wings. For some reason, I can't find chicken wings anywhere. We have a, we have a national shortage of chicken wings in this country, and it blows my mind. Every time I go to Walmart, can't find them. Uh, that's why I mentioned the cicada. I don't know if, uh, if you oh. saw this, uh, <laughs> Daniel, but Frank's Red Hot, the, uh, the hot sauce company, came out with a digital cookbook for cicadas, a 13-recipe cicada cookbook. Number one was air-fried cicada wings, and they kind of they played on the idea that chicken wings have been unavailable, and they said, well, luckily, yeah. the, main, the star main ingredient of the dish will be widely available uh, this summer. <laughs> but all right, Daniel, I'm thank you so much. I'm based area, so cicadas yeah. is something I, I can get my hands on. <laughs> yeah, I bet. All right, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Hey, where should everybody go if they want to find out more about the port tracker or Hackett Associates? Uh, HackettAssociates.com is a link right there to my email, to a, a sample report. Otherwise, you can always Google the National Retail Federation as well. They have a great press release every month. All right. Thank you so much, Mr. Hackett. We'll talk soon. All right. Uh, let's, let's move on to a quick uh, new segment that I was going to introduce uh, because you are here. I found it kind of funny to do this. When we have an economic release that is you know, quite beefy and has a lot to break down, I think we should do a segment called The Good, The Bad, and The Anthony. And here we will, we will give the, the good and the bad of the report, and then you'll also just tell us one thing that you took away from it that you liked it. Okay, let's so uh, let's do ISM manufacturing, because uh, we've talked a lot about services here today. I can, yeah, I'll give you the rundown on services. Everything's up. Uh, the demand is very high, but the, the, the challenges are very similar on both ISM manufacturing and the ISM services. Higher commodity and material cost and difficulty sourcing labor, that's pretty much what you're going to hear on both sides. But Anthony, uh, run me through the good and the bad and the Anthony of the ISM manufacturing. Let's do it. I love this new segment. So the ISM PMI, the manufacturing index overall is showing that, okay, so the good news is that new orders are coming in. That could be good news because it's showing that there is increased production. Um, people are, businesses are still maintaining that, that demand despite what's going on. The bad news, those prices, they're still elevated. There's still this huge commodity shortage throughout the, the, the country, throughout the world really, and getting those things in the right position. So that's really going to be the bad news. Good news, production still going on. Businesses are still going to be getting their manufacturing put in place. Bad news, like I said, is going to be those prices. The thing that I'm going to be watching closely is, of course, employment. And so, of course, employment, I don't think it's too much of a surprise that there is a demand for it right now. And that demand is only going to kind of keep increasing as manufacturing keeps increasing. 
But specifically within manufacturing, there has been a lot of, I think, some innovations put into place throughout COVID. And so that means that there might be some more technical advancements put into place. And so people that have left manufacturing overall may not be going back to those same manufacturing jobs that they just left. There might be some type of new protocol. There might be some type of new technical skill that they have to try to learn. And that's going to be another hurdle potentially to kind of pull some of those employees back into it overall. So good production still going on, new orders, uh, bad prices, but I'm watching employment. Very good. Uh, you know, we were going to call this the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you actually went very close to what I was going to do, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The ugly, obviously, the labor challenges. Yeah. You know, some of these comments here, they say demand is high, but we're struggling to find employees. Ongoing component shortages are driving dual sourcing and longer-term supply chain challenges uh, are there. So, I mean, it's just across the board, we're seeing labor problems. Uh, I mean, I mean, we're hoping those would ease, right? We've yeah. got some, we've got the tapering off of unemployment benefits towards the back half of the year. So that could get some people back into uh, the labor force. All right, that's all we've got for episode 73 of Great Quarter, guys. We'll be back next week live at 3 p.m. Eastern. Make sure to tune in to the Small Fleet and Owner Operator Summit. That'll be tomorrow, 9 a.m. You'll see our smiling faces. See you then.